Hey guys, Paul here from Melton Performance Coaching and the Complete Personal Trainer Podcast. So now we're going to get back into the meat and potatoes of what we do. We're going to stick to a little bit more training and nutrition content just for a little bit because we really kind of did a lot of communication stuff. There was a lot of material that you can take from and actually do some stuff with. So now let's address the other side of the continuum as well, which is what we do in the gym with our clients. So programming, I'm going to go through some common programming mistakes, how not to make them or how to recognize when you have made them and how to fix them up as they occur. So let's get started with this one here. So the first programming mistake we're going to discuss is not respecting Meldrum's law of non-competing demands. Now, sounds really cocky and arrogant to uh, name a law after myself, but I did because it was funny. And if, you know, you get Poliquin step ups and Patrick step ups and Peterson step ups. If you don't have a name, step up after yourself. If you haven't done the fitness industry correct. So the rule about non-competing demands is a programming principle that can be applied either at a macro level or a micro level. So let's explore it in detail in both. I'm just going to get a little bit better light in here, or a bit less light as well. Um, now, so at a micro level, the law of non-competing demands basically assumes that your exercise selection doesn't want to have a limiting factor, it doesn't want to have a competing tissue demand that will influence in a negative way the performance of the exercise or the workout. So this rule, well, this first became apparent to me a long, long time ago, training doing a classic old German body composition program by Poliquin. And I was doing it in a gym, I'd worked for all different phases, and I was up to the advanced phase, which was a superset of deadlifts and chin-ups. Now, by that time I'd been training for a while, so I was, in, I was pretty good at both those lifts. I had a pretty good deadlift, I had a pretty good chin-up, I wasn't exceptional, uh, but I could do them. And after two sets of that workout, my forearms were about to explode. I felt like I would need to get a knife to cut them to release the tension in there. And that's when kind of like the rule of non-competing demands became apparent to me. It was that a smaller muscle group using can become the limiting factor between the performance of two exercises. And this became really apparent in a workout where you would design supersets, for example. So everyone always talked about how you wouldn't do isolation work before compound work in a lot of cases because you didn't want to pre-fatigue the target muscle. In some situations, that's not absolutely correct. But for this one, what we're looking at is we're looking at a limiting factor being a muscle that's not the direct training goal of the either exercise. It's not the goal to stimulate that muscle. So with the chin-up and the deadlift, I'm sure we can all agree that grip is a common factor between those two. Forearm demand on both those exercises is high. Uh, they're both using fixed bar implements, which means elbow stress is high as well, relatively for a lot of people, they struggle with elbow pain from chin-ups, pull-ups, and deadlifts, etc. So the, that superset, by its very nature, has a performance limiter, which is the forearms, that are much weaker than the glutes and the back and every muscle that's trained in a deadlift, and much weaker than the lats and the biceps that are trained in the chin-up. So when I looked at that, I started going, all right, cool. So where are some other things that, you know, these supersets, where, where is this applied? Where does this happen quite a lot? Um, comparing lunges with rows. In, on paper, if you're doing a full body workout, that's not a bad idea because they're totally different body parts. Sorry, I've got some cables underneath me. They're totally different body parts. It's cool. You're working systemic fatigue. You're working upper body, lower body. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. But what's the implement you're using to load? 
So if you're using dumbbells for the lunge, for example, and then using a grip on a rowing exercise, again, the forearms are gonna be the limiting factor. If you're doing a lower body superset and you're supersetting back squats with Romanian deadlifts, for example, you know, in theory, your prime movers are the quads and the glutes in one and the hamstrings and the glutes in the other. But what's the limiting factor that's going to get most people in that? It's gonna be the lower back. So what I started applying this principle for was looking at my program and seeing how the impact of any kind of superset or triset type work was on that and then how each exercise impacted another tissue based in that workout. So for example, I wouldn't start a workout doing um, say 45 degree back extensions then go into a heavy deadlift session because what would happen is there would be a limiting factor there. This is something that a lot of people haven't considered a lot now with a lot of uh, common hypertrophy training. The rule with hypertrophy training now is to train the muscle that is your biggest priority. What you need to do is make sure if your muscle is the biggest priority, if it's a smaller muscle group, that it doesn't impair on the ability to handle load of a larger exercise for a larger muscle group, purely for fatigue reasons and injury management. So from a macro le micro level, it's a really simple rule to apply. Do any of your exercises have a negative impact on the other exercises around it in the program? On a macro level, what we need to do is we need to look at is do our overall prescription of sets, reps, volume, uh, training goals, etc., have an impact on other parts of the program? So we see this very often discussed with concurrent training. So there is a bit of a knock against concurrent training in some areas where you know any kind of aerobic adaptation is the opposite of a strength adaptation. So programming them together probably isn't the best use of your time. And you know what? I think that rule is a little bit overstated for most people. I don't think doing 20 minutes on the elliptical at the end of your workout is going to suck away all your hypertrophy gains, but there's definitely going to be some degree of impact. And the volume of each is going to determine on the other. So that said, we're not just looking at that, but I'm looking at if someone wants to train for multiple goals, they want to increase their power, their speed, their maximal strength, their endurance, etc. So they're trying to become more athletic. The problem I see is that when people are putting all these different eggs into one training program in that day or in that week. And what happens in this scenario is that all these different tools and different methods, although all can be very, very useful by themselves, they all have different adaptation pathways and adaptation curves. So what seems to happen overall is that you don't adapt to any of them as well as you would have adapted to just doing one at a time. So again, Belgium's law of competing demands is you need to look at does my program actually have a lot of competing demands in it? Now, are there exceptions to this rule? Functional fitness, so the CrossFit type vibe. I think if you're not, my personal opinion, if you're not going to compete at it, I think uh, it's absolutely fine to do this because you are looking for a broad spectrum of fitness qualities. Will you get as good a result as if you focused on one or two at a time and then maintain the others? No, I don't believe you would have. I don't think any sports science would believe that you would as well. So what I've seen from my admittedly not incredibly large amount of experience working with sport, um, fitness and sport athletes is that the best ones do training sessions dedicated towards entirely towards certain disciplines. It's a gymnastic session, it's a weightlifting session, et cetera, et cetera. And that seems to give the best outcomes to them. And when they get into the competitive season, that's when they start bringing in the more varied random workouts because they wanna basically adapt to that not from purely a physiological standpoint, but also from a psychological standpoint. Doing those workouts is very, very different to doing like say a heavy weightlifting workout and that's it. Doing a heavy weightlifting workout and then rowing one kilometer is very different.
So guys, that's the first programming mistake I see, Meldrum's law of uh, non-competing demands being violated. So from this, have a look at your programs. Have a look at any of your supersets and things like that. Are you violating any of these rules? And from there, if you are or if you aren't, that's cool. You can modify that pretty much straight away. What I want you to also do is look at the macro design of your programs and see, are you trying to fit everything into one workout? Are you trying to achieve every single possible goal? So guys, have a think about, have a look at your programs. Stay tuned for the next episode where we dive into the next mistake commonly made.